Has the department conducted any kind of post-election forensics on the voting machines that were used in 2016? No. No, they haven't. Never. They never have. They never will. Will they do it after 2020? I don't know. What will they do beforehand? We'll talk about it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, five days a week on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. It was... Uh, uh, Desi Doyen, it was a rough week last week on this show. <laughs> uh, didn't you think? Oh, Pretty yeah. much every day well, was... Every, yeah. Everything falling apart all at once. All at once. Uh, so, uh, so let me hit w- what suffices for a bit of good news to start things off today uh, in a second before things devolve as they do. Uh, but also, while I'm, I'm very worried about what could happen in our upcoming elections, as anyone who's listened to this show over the years, even for a few minutes, probably already re- realizes, I'm also very much looking forward uh, to those elections as what I have often described as the last firewall against the rising authoritarianism of the Trump era. So to that end, toward the idea that the people may rise up to remove a tyrant, I'm also very excited about the elections, which also just happened to fill fill me with dread. So, uh, you know, take your pick. Exciting, dreadful. How about all at once? (laughs) Yes, that's what we got. Um... So as we, we've covered a lot of uh, tough topics uh, pretty much every day on our show uh, last week. So let's have something maybe a little bit more fun and lighthearted a little bit later, maybe. Uh, presumptive, if we have time, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden said he would be announcing his, his uh, <coughs> selection for vice president this week. That seems to have gotten pushed back to next week now, but there is much speculation on who exactly it will be. And while we don't usually entertain such frivolities on this show, 
I want to do it anyway. So uh, I've got a guest I'll be speaking with momentarily uh, about something else entirely, which may scare the crap out of us all over again. But then at least we can speculate on some politics. Uh, so if you want to line up now for that, I'll open the phones later at 818-985-5735 to get your thoughts on who A, you would like Joe Biden to name as his uh, veep, and B, who you think or fear that he will name instead. And perhaps I'll share my thoughts on the same a little bit later. For the moment, though, as promised, we'll start with what suffices for some good news today for those of us who believe in justice and the rule of law, at least, uh, as more than a political slogan. A Manhattan prosecutor trying to get Donald Trump's tax returns told a judge on Monday that he was justified in demanding them, citing public reports of, quote, extensive and protracted criminal conduct at the Trump Organization. Trump's lawyers last month said the grand jury subpoena for his tax returns was issued in bad faith and amounted to harassment of the president. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court did not agree, but they did send the case back down to make really, really sure that it was appropriate uh, for these uh, subpoenas to be served for Donald Trump's taxes. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. seeks eight years of the Republicans, Republican president's personal and corporate taxes, but has disclosed very little about what prompted him to request those records, other than part of the investigation relates to payoffs to women to keep them quiet about alleged affairs with Donald Trump. Those would be the uh, payments to porn star uh, Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal just before the 2016 election. Those amounted to uh, criminal campaign finance violations for which Trump's attorney, Michael Cohn, was sentenced to three years in jail for participating in a conspiracy According to both Cohn himself and federal prosecutors, a conspiracy that was, quote, directed by the president himself, a president who has to date faced no penalties for having directed that criminal conspiracy. But today's filing in court in Manhattan suggests that uh, the state's prosecutor is looking at much more than just those criminal hush money payoffs. In a court filing on Monday, attorneys for the district attorney, Vance, uh, said Trump's arguments that the subpoena was too broad stemmed from the, quote, false premise that the probe was limited to only those so-called hush money payouts. This court is already aware that this assertion is fatally undermined by undisputed information in the public record, Vance's lawyers wrote. They said that information confirms the validity of a subpoena seeking evidence related to potentially improper transactions by a variety of individuals and entities over a period of years, citing, quote, allegations of possible criminal activity, at the Trump Organization, dating back over a decade. These public reports describe transactions involving individuals and corporate actors based in New York County, but whose conduct at times extended beyond New York's borders and may reflect, they said, a continuing pattern of conduct. The lawyer said every day that goes by is another day. Plaintiff effectively achieves the temporary absolute immunity that was rejected by this court, by the Court of Appeals and by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
according to Vance's lawyers. Every, every such day also increases the prospect of a loss of evidence or the expiration of statute of limitations periods, he noted. The precise concerns that the Supreme Court observed justified its rejection of the plaintiff's immunity claim in the first place, unquote. The Supreme Court, of course, you recall last month, rejected claims by Trump's lawyers that the president could not be criminally investigated while he was in office. Vance's lawyers said Trump was not entitled to know the scope and nature of the grand jury investigation. But they said information already in the public domain about Trump's business dealings provided satisfactory support for the subpoena of his tax records. They cited several newspaper articles, including one in The Washington Post, uh, examining allegations that Trump had a practice of sending out financial statements, for example, to potential business partners and banks that inflated the worth of his properties by claiming that they were bigger or potentially more lucrative than they were. That, in a word, would be fraud. And that, according to the tea leaves being read in today's filings, uh, means that Trump is at the center of a very broad criminal investigation by state prosecutors. State prosecutors. That means it's a case in which uh, he, he can't simply be pardoned away by Trump himself. Uh, one day I may want to open the phone lines to get your opinions on which country Donald Trump and his family may ultimately try to flee to. But for now, uh, we will take the news uh, available in this court filing as good news indeed for those of us who actually do care about accountability and, yes, the actual rule of law. But speaking of the rule of law, a Florida teen was identified Friday as the mastermind of a scheme last month that commandeered Twitter accounts of prominent politicians, celebrities, technology moguls, and scammed people around the globe out of more than $100,000 in Bitcoin. Two other men were also uh, charged in that case. 17-year-old Graham Ivan Clark was arrested on Friday in Tampa, where he now faces 30 felony charges, according to a news release from prosecutors. Two men accused of benefiting from the hack, a 19-year-old from the U.K. and a 22-year-old from Orlando, were charged separately in California federal court. In one of the most high-profile security breaches in recent years, bogus tweets were sent out on July 15 from the account of Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Mike Bloomberg, and a number of other tech billionaires, including Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Microsoft founder Bill Gates, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, and others. The tweets offered to send $2,000 for every $1,000 sent to an anonymous Bitcoin address. And this hack alarmed security experts uh, in one part because of the grave potential of such an intrusion on Twitter for creating geopolitical mayhem with disinformation. Imagine had they taken over Donald Trump's accounts, what they might have said or done. But they didn't. In any event, the story caught our attention on this program because it's just the latest example of a multi-billion dollar company being unable to protect their own cyber assets, even in this case from a 17-year-old kid in Florida who was able to take over the Twitter accounts of Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and a whole bunch of other really high-profile folks. 
If a company as huge as Twitter, with as many resources as they have for cybersecurity, cannot protect their own highly secure computer systems, well, what chance does Mr. and Mrs. County Clerk have from fending off cyber attacks during the upcoming never more critical presidential elections on November 3rd? That, as states across the country are radically changing their voting systems to allow for the expansion of vote by mail to help mitigate the threat of the coronavirus at the polling places, and as Republicans in Congress have once again refused to include any funding for upgraded election cybersecurity initiatives within their latest proposed emergency relief bill. A bill that appears to be going nowhere at the moment as Republicans bicker amongst themselves despite the clock having run out on expanded unemployment insurance amidst the worst economic downturn in modern times. Perhaps in all times uh, here in the U.S. and with elections uh, now just three months away with elections officials hoping for some $4 billion quickly to help them shore up their voting and tabulation systems, as well as their cyber defenses, none of which was included in the uh, Republican proposal. And remember, Republicans are also in the process of trying to kill the U.S. Postal Service by refusing to also include in that economic rescue bill any funding to help the post office be able to stand the tsunami of vote-by-mail that we're expecting in November. Oh, yeah, there's that too. So with, with all of that and with that money that may never come, uh, leaving Mr. and Mrs. County Clerk to fend for themselves this year yet again, uh, for those of us who, who appreciate the cyber threats from insiders and outsiders alike, foreign and domestic, well, as eager as I am to get to this election, it is with much trepidation the closer that it gets. To that end, while the dithering by Washington Republicans is decidedly very bad news, there may be some good news on this score today to bring help to local election officials this fall based on an announcement made on Friday by the good folks at the University of Chicago Harris Cyber Policy Initiative. That story and the executive director of that group joins us next to explain. I'm Brad Friedman. And you are listening to the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hang on. Help is on its way. I'll be there as fast as I can. Yeah, we could use some help. Hang on. Don't take your time either. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com here with you. Uh, who, who would you like to see, by the way? Who would you like to see Joe Biden name as his vice presidential candidate? Uh, that's the first question. And um, B, who uh, who do you think 
or fear that he will name. You can call us and uh, line up to, to talk about that. We'll get to your calls in a bit at 818-985-5735. Uh, But as NBC News reported on Friday, election officials across the country are preparing for November's pandemic-based elections without knowing if they'll receive additional federal funds to help address a myriad of cybersecurity concerns, particularly while expanding their systems to deal with an unprecedented number of vote-by-mail absentee ballots this year course, due to the COVID-19 crisis. Some states uh, pay private companies for cybersecurity. Others rely on in-house staff or federal assistance where they can get it. But nearly all have led to drastically uh, rearranging their budgets this year to focus on holding an election during a pandemic. Uh, They've had to adjust their budgets to cover an influx of mailed ballots and to buy cleaning supplies and personal protective equipment. All of the counties and states around the country must contend with assuring people that their vote, no matter how it's cast, will count and that it is secure, even in the face of Donald Trump throwing doubt on the very process used to elect him, as he continuously does via tweets and in public statements, etc., meant to undermine the coming elections themselves. With Congress still debating what the next coronavirus relief bill will look like and a proposal from Senate Republicans that offers no additional funding at all for election officials, States are now anticipating the possibility that they will receive no additional resources before November. While the federal government does provide some free election cybersecurity tools, states are under no obligation to use them. The Department of Homeland Security, for instance, offers state and local election directors some free cybersecurity services. Though, as we saw in the 2016 election, some states were loath to open their systems to the federal government, even after questionable elections, such as the 2016 presidential election, one of the closest of all time, and certainly the one with perhaps the most surprising ending ever. Even then, the Department of Homeland Security's ability or willingness to investigate what was maddeningly uh, you know, limited at the time, they they didn't even get access to the voting systems after the elections. Well, we've played this clip dozens of times by now, but it needs to be played again. Here's Janet, uh, uh, Jeanette Manfra. She's the head or was the head of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's cybersecurity initiative, conceding during a June 2017 U.S. Senate hearing that her organization never even bothered to examine voting and tabulation systems after the 2016 elections, despite all of the concerns about the accuracy of the incredibly close results and the the many concerns that, uh, in that case, foreign powers may have attempted to manipulate the results. Has the department conducted any kind of post-election forensics on the voting machines that were used in 2016? We have not, our department has not conducted forensics on specific voting machines. That was eight months after the 2016 election. Again, uh, just after one of the closest and most shocking election results of all time. And there was no post-election forensic analysis of the voting and the counting computers by DHS, much less by states or even counties. 
Later in Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russian interference in the 2016 election, he conceded that his office did no such post-election analysis either to determine if results were accurate or if they had been changed. But he did cite others that uh, were doing it, such as the DHS. Well, they didn't do it. So if it's virtually impossible to catch manipulation after an election, if election officials won't even allow the DHS, much less the public, to oversee the systems that tabulate our votes, how about the efforts to prevent cyber intrusions before they can happen? Before they can happen. Now, the toothless U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, or EAC, an advisory agency that's the closest thing election officials and uh, election system makers actually have to, uh, closest thing they have to a regulating federal body, they recently released a free online cybersecurity course. Yes. Are you an election official? Take this course. Maybe it'll help. Good luck, guys. The chair of the EAC, Ben Hovland, uh, last week told NBC that he welcomes any free help to local election officials. Well, given uh, that states and cities are now largely broke due to the coronavirus shutdowns and Republicans in Congress continuing to refuse to provide anything near the $4 billion that election officials across the country have been begging for, estimating that it's now needed to run this year's election safely, yeah, you bet the EAC would be happy for someone to provide free help to local elections officials. Well, it's not $4 billion worth of funding, but at least some help on that score may now be on the way and not a moment too soon. A University of Chicago initiative announced on Friday called the Election Cyber Surge aims to act as matchmaker between local election officials who may not have access to cybersecurity services and qualified experts who want to help. Cyber uh, Surge traces its uh, roots back to DEFCON. You may remember that, the largest American hacker conference where, since 2017, they've hosted a voting village where hackers take turns breaking into various pieces of election equipment, including voting computers uh, hand-marked paper ballot computer tabulators, even computerized voter registration and electronic poll book systems. Finnish computer security and voting systems expert Hari Hursti, an organizer for, uh, for both the Voting Village and this Cyber Surge initiative, said the initiative is designed to help local election officials who do not know how to even begin securing their networks. He says there is no requirement to become an election official in most of the U.S., so for anyone who wins the race on the ballot, now you have the job. No previous experience is required. That lack of cybersecurity experience has been a costly one to confidence uh, that Americans now have, or lack thereof, in their elections. And for good reason. As some of you may know, if you happen to catch the uh, the new chilling HBO documentary Kill Chain, the cyber war on American elections in which Hari Hursty plays a, a starring role, uh, you would know that our elections are seriously at threat. Uh, we interviewed the filmmakers of that documentary on this program a few months ago, but I spoke with uh, Hursty over the weekend about this new initiative. He tells me that it's both long overdue and he is encouraged by it. 
Now, I've worked with uh, Hari, uh, really a legend when it comes uh, to the field of hacking into and protecting voting systems. I've worked with him in various ways over the past 17 years or so. Uh, I first interviewed him in an award-winning documentary called Murder, Spies, and Voting Lies. But I've never had him on the radio show because he has a very heavy Finnish accent. Uh, that is hard to understand, though he's getting much better of late, and I do hope to have him on the show in the future. For now, though, I was very happy to see this announcement on Friday from the Cyber Policy Initiative at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy regarding the launch of this election cyber surge initiative Um, which comes just, as I said, not a moment too soon, 90 days before the election. The new effort, according to their announcement, is meant to help address the urgent need to connect state and local election officials in some of the 13,000 different U.S. election jurisdictions with volunteer technologists. Joining us now is former longtime government cybersecurity strategist Maya Warman, previously an official at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. She now leads the new Election Cyber Surge Initiative as executive director at the University of Chicago. Maya Warman, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. I know you were, uh, you're, you're dodging some ugly weather out there today, so hopefully you can stay with us as long as possible. Uh, as you can tell uh, from that intro, I am very worried about the security of our upcoming elections, Maya, and what is really a, a culmination of at least two decades of making public oversight of our elections damn near impossible. Uh, that's now going to be even more difficult with the necessary expansion of of absentee vote by mail voting this year. Uh, so I I feel like it's going to be next to impossible for the public to oversee our elections, and frankly, impossible for even local election officials who are usually not cybersecurity experts. Uh, you know to make all of those computer systems secure. Tell me about the genesis of the Cyber Surge Initiative and and why you guys feel that this sort of service is necessary this year, just 90 days out from the election. Well, I think it's 92, so let's not lose those two. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. You're going to need them. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I think that the the need is clear. I think it's increasingly more um, obvious to people who aren't following this closely, who don't follow this beat, who aren't um, techies or they just don't follow cyber news. Mm -hmm. Um, So that in itself is a strong indicator that that we are needed. Also, the challenges of COVID um, intensified um, the need, Mm -hmm. mostly because all of the challenges were compounded when we talk about a massive increase in absentee Gosh, spending mm-hmm. first part of spring and all of summer with clerk's offices closed and registration challenged um, and people working from home. I mean, the, the vulnerability list only grows and only expands with every different metric and factor yeah. um, that is necessary for pulling off an election. And I think that's what the first step is, is that proactive security culture, mm-hmm. but then looking at election systems for what they are interconnected information systems where layers of protection are essential and each um, sort of inroad mm-hmm. and um, critical element is protected with that same energy. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, voter roll. It's mm-hmm. not just the 
um, output of the machines, but um, all of the things in between, including yeah. maps of where your polling place might be right. and the hours, uh, the hours that they're open and what the deadlines are to register and the information you need once you get there. All of this stuff um, can be tweaked just slightly that could affect, you know, a major uh, portion of the voters in any given jurisdiction. Yep, and that's exactly what I'm worried about. Uh, now, uh, Maya, as I know, there are some 13,000 separate voting jurisdictions in the U.S. A lot of times people say, oh, well, our, our systems are so decentralized because we have 50 different systems in 50 different states. Actually, we got about 13,000 different systems in about 13,000 different jurisdictions. Uh, do you have any sense of how many of them actually do have uh, cybersecurity experts on staff, or do most of them simply rely on the voting machine vendors themselves to provide uh, their uh, system security? Yeah, I think that that's um, probably the most common structure. Mm. I think that I've read a a survey recently that more than 50% of all election officials rely on at least six different vendors. Mm. Um, I, I don't know that that's a lot, mm-hmm. but I think there is um, obviously an expectation that the people with whom they're all doing business will not lead them astray. And maybe they won't. Um, but when you have so many different overlapping um, tools and systems and a network, and mm-hmm. it's all being fed by an antiquated uh, database that is protected, who knows how, um, that's where vulnerabilities from having multiple vendors comes in. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and you have uh, the problem where these uh, vendors, whether they're the electronic poll book vendors, whether they're the voting machines uh, vendors or the tabulator vendors, they also want to protect their own systems. They're not necessarily going to be the first one to, uh, you know, ring the alarm when there is a security vulnerability to let everyone know about it, to let even election officials know about it. So, uh, you know, this is a lot of jurisdictions. This is a very minimum amount of security, as I've seen it over the years. Now, I know that you guys are just getting started, but do you have anywhere near the amount of volunteers uh, who, frankly, even understand these complicated systems, many of them are these Rube Goldberg sort of systems, uh, you know, do you have enough people to help the number of jurisdictions that likely could use some, some of your free help here? Uh, in a word, yes. Uh, but, you know, obviously you, you're saying 13,000. I've heard 10,000. Mm-hmm. I often say 8,000. I think that speaks to the problem. If we can't talk about a real inventory using the same number, mm-hmm. um, then we we have a, you know, a pretty big problem. Yeah. But, yeah, there are a lot of jurisdictions and election officials, just like banks, and schools and the mom and pop shop down the street, they all have room to improve. So, of course, every single jurisdiction has a way to improve. And cybersecurity is never done. It doesn't stop. So even if they're in great shape last week, they need to recheck and make sure they're in great shape this week. Um, so, yes, that is a lot of jurisdiction. That's a lot of people who likely need help. Um, but if, you know, we get any... Um, percentage of interest, we will definitely be ready to help. So you need uh, some interest. You need people. Uh, you need volunteers for this. Uh, do I understand that correctly? Um, I, you know, I welcome them. Um, 
absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and we definitely want to meet the need as it's presented to us. If people come, if people raise their hand and say, um, I need help, we want to be able to help them. And we are in a good position to do that. Oh, I don't have any um, doubts there. But that said, um, if you know there are volunteers out there who are interested, I, I welcome them to uh, reach out and, and we can talk about the process. So what is your hope exactly then in matching up jurisdictions with volunteers? How will those volunteers actually help the jurisdictions uh, specifically? I mean, will this be, uh, will they be local or will most of this be done online or over the phone? Uh, What exactly? Sure, it will be remote support. Mm -hmm. So it will be over the phone. Um, And I just want to just clarify the matchmaking piece. Um, the election officials will come to us and say, here's what I know, here's what I don't know, or I don't even know how to begin. Mm. What, depending on what they say they need or what they say their challenges or their objectives are, mm-hmm. we will then go to our network and say, here are 10 people who know this world, who know this um, you know, mm-hmm. culture or environment or um, you know, process that we understand you to be in and then allow that election official to choose from there. So they will have the ultimate decision that maybe they will want to find someone local. And we'll definitely, um, we have a great geographic representation, but we will think about that when we get mm-hmm. an inquiry from an elected official. You know, here's someone who's from your home state, mm-hmm. and here's someone who's not from your home state, but has, you know, cutting-edge skills in this area. Um, and then we encourage the election official to do their due diligence, their standard process and protocol for making sure the person is an appropriate person to work with, whether, you know, NDA, confidentiality, mm-hmm. um, fulfill those requirements. And then begin an open and candid conversation. And whether that is, here are my objectives, how can you help, or what should I be doing, or how can I be sure these best practices are implemented, or can you explain this cybersecurity course I got from yeah. the higher ups. Yeah, well, that that was one of the things that uh, when I uh, I was sort of struck by when I was talking to Hari over the weekend, Hari Hursty over the weekend. He said that there are many cases where. Uh, it's difficult even that help that is offered by the Department of Homeland Security in some cases where, uh, you know, election officials do want to work with DHS and their various testing that they're willing to offer, that in many of those cases, some of these election officials, he told me, don't even know their own IP address. They don't even know uh, where their computers actually live on the Internet to even uh, tell the DHS where they are, essentially. Uh, it's it's troubling to hear that because this is election officials uh, who are you know entrusted to do a whole hell of a lot, and many of them don't even know that they're, uh, for example, as we've we've seen over the past year or so uh, from uh, some excellent research on this, uh, many of these officials don't even realize that their systems are available on the internet. Absolutely. But the, the complexity of how election operations have evolved is, is really staggering. And um, for someone who doesn't come from, whether it's a computer science or information security mm-hmm. um, or, or that type of field, um, it's, for whatever reason, isn't alarming. It's more because it's abstract, because it is, seems detached from, you know, day-to-day operations, it doesn't feel real, or because they feel like any effort is futile, um, there isn't a lot of 
proactive and definitely not a lot of aggressive effort um, to shore up systems. And I, you know, I don't want to fault the election officials necessarily um, exclusively mm-hmm. um, because they are working with what they've been given. Yes, mm-hmm. they did um, run for that office or they were appointed to be in that office and they go to work by choice. Um, but, but uh, you know, the days of making sure that the, the room where the ballots are kept is locked, we're far beyond that. Now. Right. And yeah. so um, a, a reality check that's gentle but based in uh, reality is, is critical. Yeah, and listen, I, I'm not suggesting it's their fault either. Uh, I am suggesting oftentimes it's the uh, private vendor's fault because they don't tell the election officials everything. Some of these election officials, when they when they found that their uh, system was discoverable on the Internet, they insisted the researchers had to be wrong until it was actually proven to them that, no, here's your system right here. You didn't know that it's, a, you know, a 365 days a year actually available to people on the Internet. Uh, Maya Warman, I've got a, I got a lot of concerns about the upcoming elections. As we saw here in Los Angeles, for example, during the March 3rd uh, Super Tuesday primary, we had a disaster at the polls with the county's new elect. Uh, electronic touchscreen ballot marking devices and the new electronic poll books, both of which failed on March 3, leading to long uh, hours, long lines in, in an election that is expected to have uh, just a fraction of the number of voters that we will see in the general elections. And yet the county plans to use those same failed systems again. And we saw similar stories elsewhere in the country, in Georgia, Nevada, New York, Kentucky, Uh, Just some of the places that come to mind during the primaries where we saw similar disasters. And so I'm concerned about, you know, voting and electronic poll books simply failing, whether they are hacked or not. But I got to say, one of my gravest fears is a ransomware attack that could simply cripple an entire state or county on November 3rd making it uh, essentially impossible for votes to be cast at all. Can you speak about some of the concerns that your organization has uh, as the as the basis for putting this effort together in the first place? Is that the sort of thing that concerns you? Absolutely. I mean, I think when you talk about vulnerabilities, network, operating system, human factors, process challenges, if you have a strong approach for those types of vulnerabilities, then you're going to, I don't want to say be ready for a ransomware, but you're going to reduce your threat surface um, in a way that could make all the difference. Like I said, that uh, aggressive and really strong security culture is sometimes the greatest defense. That doesn't mean you have the most expensive uh, people on the case. Mm -hmm. That means that in every aspect of your work, you're thinking about the security of that work. And that in itself is such a strong deterrent. And sometimes a deterrent is a really great defense. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, absolutely. Ransomware, I mean, we've seen it uh, cripple cities, cripple hospital networks, um, you know, embarrass cities, embarrass hospital networks. I mean, there is such a, a spectrum of what could happen depending on the mood or the outcome of any sort of um, targeted, tailored ransomware tool. You know, it depends on the, um, the desired effect. Is it to um, gain notoriety? Is it to um, make a mockery of democracy? Is it, to, is it just someone trying to move on to the next level in their own sort of um, choose-your-own-adventure, um, at-home, you know, uh, cyber sort of 
<laughs> masterclass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really depends on the intent, um, but unfortunately, the outcome is is going to be the same. And with regard to ransomware, um, most jurisdictions won't be prepared um, to um, respond if that does happen. So preventing it is key, and that is something we think about a lot. And you know, implementing best practices, looking at the most common vulnerabilities and shoring those up in every single way possible. That is how we prepare um, and how we help people prepare to, to face ransomware. Yeah, well, no pressure. Just the fate of the entire world is on your shoulders, Maya. I, uh, I realize the initiative was just announced. Have you already heard, begun to hear from election officials uh, seeking your assistance? We have. We've got about 90 days, uh, well, I'm sorry, 92 days until Election Day itself, Uh, but only about half that number before ballots start going out in the mail, before early voting begins in many places. Uh, Last question here, uh, Maya Worman, is there even enough time for what you hope to do here? Yes. Uh, Yes, there is. You know, uh, I mean, we know in government... um, Things can move slow. These aren't overly nimble. They aren't um, well-resourced in people or or money. Um, And and those are the things that cause a delay in action. Those are the things that take a long time. Procurement processes are heavy and take six months to pull off. Mm -hmm. Um, And and all of that stuff, we we can bypass all of that, and we can set all of that aside because this is um, direct access to free technology. Yeah. So putting aside all of the things that take the time, that take the layers and the approval and the public, you know, whatever they call it, the public source of, um, Mm -hmm. or vendors. Right. Um, So we're setting all of that aside and saying, you're the boss, what do you need? Here's the technologist who can help with that. I don't know that we will get any inquiries from elected officials that we won't be able to field with ease. So Uh. we're taking all of the things out of the equation that have brought us to this point. Well, um, the... I, I, I got I to jump out here, Maya. I, I'm, I'm so glad you are there. I hope that election officials uh, take advantage of this service. I hope you guys uh, have enough resources that you need. Uh, to, by the way, uh, and, and people can uh, follow, get more information at harris.uchicago.edu. Or on the Twitters at Elections Surge. I think you're also available on Facebook if people do want to help out. Is there anything uh, that we, the people, uh, by the way, can can actually do to help support this initiative, Maya? I mean, I, I, without sounding too trite, I think staying positive is key here. I think okay. it's very clear <laughs> that there are more people who want our elections to work than who don't want them to work. And that's important to remember. Fair enough. Uh, I will do my best to stay positive. Uh, made a little bit easier with you guys on the case. Maya Worman is the executive director at University of Chicago Harris Cyber Poll Initiative. Uh, now ahead of their elections cyber surge program. Maya, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for joining us here on the show. And please stay in touch if there's anything we can uh, do to help along the way. you got 92 days and counting. Go. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. We'll take a quick break here, and we will come back with some of your phone calls. 
because I need to stay positive. I, you know, who, uh, if your phone calls, well, we could talk about this if you want, but I'd love to hear from you at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Uh, who do you uh, like as Joe Biden's vice president? Uh, and who do you think he will actually name? So it's a two-part question. Call us right now, 818-985-KPFK. We'll fly through as many as we can. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our phone number is 818-985-KPFK. Who would you like to see Joe Biden name as his vice presidential candidate? It's supposed to happen. He said it was going to happen this week. Now it maybe got pushed back till next week. Uh, But it's fun just to think about as far as I'm concerned. Uh, A lot more fun than most of the stuff we have to cover on this program. Who would you like to see Biden name uh, and who do you fear that he will name? You can call us and line up for that right now. 818-985-5735. Let's jump to uh, some of your calls on that already. Nathan in Thousand Oaks, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Who uh, who would you like to see Biden name? Well, my dream choice would be Michelle Obama and get, you know. <laughs> right? The Obama's back in there. Okay. But, uh, of the people who he's probably actually considering, yeah. Kamala Harris would be my first choice. Okay. The person that I fear mm-hmm. he might choose and I might not even vote for mm-hmm. as much as I hate Trump. Yeah. Um, would, would be uh, Elizabeth Warren because she's a socialist. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I'm, so tired, I'm tired of this extremism. Uh, you know, on both sides. Really? How how is Elizabeth Warren extra? What 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 f- uh, socialism is it of Elizabeth Warren's that you fear? Well, she just uh, you know, like a lot of far left people, she acts like money grows on trees, and uh, you know, like has been going on for okay quite a few presidencies. Did now, you, did you? By the way, did I, you send I, back? A, did you send back your twelve hundred dollar uh, check that uh, they sent you with the relief bill? I still haven't deposited it, believe it or not. All right. No, I believe it. You should tear it up. 
You should also tear up. Uh, I hope you don't use the roads because that's built by socialists. You don't want that, right, Nathan? Well, come on, now you're you're acting like I'm an extremist or something. Um, I'm I'm just trying to, you know. I think that you know we should be a united states instead of what we are right now with Trump as a divided. Yeah. All right. Country. All right. Fair. And yeah. Fair but, enough. Uh, I mean, I, I, no. I just don't see Elizabeth Warren as an extremist. I'm kind of shocked to hear that. Uh, if she's a socialist, well, we're all socialists because, you know, we all believe in government programs to get out of this mess. I sure. presume if well, there, yeah, I mean, if there's going to be a, a, a vaccine for the virus, I assume you're going to take it, even though it was created by socialists, right? Well, it's, I mean, yeah, I was okay. wearing masks before they were, you know, required. All right. All right. Thanks, uh, Nathan. I appreciate that. So uh, Michelle Obama is your first vote. Uh, You uh, would also like uh, Kamala, and you fear it could be Elizabeth Warren. Appreciate that. Let's go to uh, Dancing Water in, where am I here, in Altadena. Dancing Water, is that your name? Hello? Hey, Dancing Water. Uh, Okay, good. Who is your... uh, who would you like to see uh, Joe Biden pick as his vice president? Who do you fear he will pick? I hope that he picks Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Because at the state that we're in right now, we need someone that has good policies that can help get this country back on track and back on where, uh, and, and moving us forward into the future. We need someone with good leadership. She's been in the White House working under President Obama. Uh, she has all of her ideas she puts into policies, and they've all been beneficial to everyone. Don't you fear that she is a socialist, as our last caller uh, mentioned, Dancing Water? I love it. <laughs> I love it. Everything, uh, you know, when we drink this water that's regulated, that's, you know, through all little socialism, yes. the roads, the ambulances, the, the emergencies, the schools, all of that. We benefit from. I assume so we need to have that on track. I assume. I assume the uh, uh, the person, uh, whoever, and I, I apologize. I forgot his name. Norman, I think. I assume he does not drink water from the tap because that would be socialist water. Then again, the water that you buy in bottles is also regulated or supposed to be by someone. That would be socialist water too. I think. Uh, hey, I appreciate the call. Yeah. When your house is on fire and yet fire department comes, that was all socialism ideas. Yes, it so. is. They better not show up at his house. All right. Thanks for that call, uh, Dancing Water. I appreciate it. Uh, let me go to uh, Linda in South Pasadena. Hey, Linda, who do you uh, who do you want Joe Biden to pick as his veep? Who do you fear he will pick? Well, I fear he will pick um, Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris because she has such a right-wing prosecutorial um, mindset, and she's willing to change her opinion for anywhere to get ahead. So uh, she's not my choice. And um, my choice, even though I'm a Bernie person through and through, uh, Bernie always Mm -hmm. is uh, not Elizabeth Warren, because I think she is uh, really not uh, what she... uh, She she has said things that are um, pretty good on the... economics but and finances but she doesn't stick to them as long as it doesn't get her ahead anyway um the person that i would choose uh would be stacy abrams mm-hmm. and i know stacy is kind of 
um, not really a progressive in everything, but I think she's a tremendous fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the uh, people that the strongest people in a demographic that votes Democrat all the time is the black women, mm-hmm. and I think that they would be thrilled. And I think she's very smart on voter um, uh, voter intimidation and on voter threat uh, mm-hmm. theft. And uh, I think that she is a very well-spoken individual, and I just think that it will help get um, him elected. All right. And I think that that's really important. And even though I would disagree with her policies, I think that um, it's important that we win this election. And I think that as a person of minority descent, I think that she will have uh, at least half of her program will be okay. Fair enough. I appreciate that call. Thank you very much, uh, Linda. Uh, my concern um, about Stacey Abrams is, and I like her a lot, uh, is that uh, Joe Biden is pretty old, and it would be nice to have someone who understands the federal government and how it works, unlike the knucklehead that we have had in office for the last four years, which, you know, tends to make me lean towards an Elizabeth Warren or, if I must give it away, uh, Susan Rice, I think would be fantastic. Again, I don't know her politics, to be honest, uh, but as far as understanding the federal government and how it works and having experience, I think that would be very, very valuable on the ticket. Let's go to Keith in Long, Be- Long Beach. Hey, Keith, welcome to the broadcast. Who, who's he going to pick and who do you fear? He, or who do you want and who do you fear he's going to pick? Oh, Keith, turn off your radio. All right, we got to come back to Keith. Let me go to, uh, here we go, Sam in Van Nuys. Hey, Sam, welcome to the broadcast. Oh, Sam. Okay, we love, we don't have Sam either. I want, or I want, there's Jordan. Okay. Uh, may I now? Yes, I, actually, I think we've got, uh, do we have Jordan on or Sam? No, 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 this is Sam. Okay, Sam, who do you like, very quickly, for uh, vice president, who do you think he's going to pick? I want him to pick my idol. Who's that? Bernie Sanders. Okay, and who do you think he's going to pick? Uh, Bernie Sanders. You think he's going to pick Bernie? He should. Okay. And I tell you why, may I tell you why? No, you can't. Only because it's so late in the hour, Sam, and I want to try to get to as many people as I can. But I shall mark down one vote for Bernie Sanders. Thank you. Uh, Let me go to, uh, here we go. Let me see if I got this right now. Keith in Long Beach. Do I got you, Keith? Yeah, you got me. Can Uh, you hear me? I can hear you now. All right, Keith. So uh, who who do you want to see Joe Biden pick for vice president? And who do you think he's going to pick? I... I would love to see him pick Elizabeth Warren, Mm -hmm. even though I I don't approve of her conduct during the primaries against Bernie. Um, I'm afraid he will pick Kamala Harris, and I'm on the fence as far as voting for him anyway. So if he picks Kamala Harris, he definitely will not get my vote. Who would you vote for if not for him? I would go green. Definitely. Wow. You don't think we need a, 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 a one-voice response to Donald Trump to say, no, we reject authoritarianism in this country, period, forever? Uh, you think we have the luxury to, to vote for third parties this year? Aside from Donald Trump's 
you know, bad character and, and just blatant uh, misbehavior. Yeah. He's doing the same thing Barack Obama's done, the same thing George W. Bush has done. And, and Elizabeth Warren is a candidate that's always uh, uh, espoused being a capitalist, but being a capitalist that wants to keep capitalism in check. And that's the problem we have today. All right. If capitalism is going to survive, it's going to have to be in check and played by the rules, and it hasn't been for 40 years now. All right. Thanks, Keith. Uh, I think so. we can agree on Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure I agree that uh, all of the others are all the same. I think that's uh, somewhat lazy. Uh, let me uh, shoot. I know we're running short on time. Let me squeeze in really quickly to here. Uh, Sue, go. Who do you like and who's he going to pick? Oh, Sue? Did you say Sue? Sue in Long Beach. Quickly, who's Joe Biden? Who do you like and who's he, who's he going to pick? I hope he picks Elizabeth Warren, but I don't think he will. He'll probably be pressured into uh, picking maybe Kamala Harris. All right. Thanks, Sue. I appreciate it. And we got to get in one vote for Morris here. Hey, Mo in Long Beach, give it to me. Here in Bath, who I choose. Uh-huh. I'm afraid he might pick Kamala. Let's make it real here. Wait, uh, you you choose Karen Bass. You're afraid he's going to pick who? Camla. Uh, Let's make a deal here. There you go. All right. Thanks, uh, Morris. I appreciate it. Thanks to everybody. Sorry to those who I couldn't get uh, through here today. Maybe we'll try to play this game again next week. It was fun if he hasn't uh, named her by then. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to University of Chicago's Maya Warman on the new Cyber Surge Initiative. To uh, producer Desi Doyen, to my board operator today, Federico Garcia, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Uh, that's made possible by those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That's it. We will see you there. Until we see you right back here, I hope, tomorrow with another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.